Today I chat with Anas, a good friend that I got to know him back in 2016. Anas was born and raised in the Netherlands, originally from Morocco. He studied all over Europe and the UK. I talk with him about identity, languages, education systems, <clears throat> working in software companies like Google and Atlassian. Also, we get a bit into business and marketing. And finally, we talk about his experience being a digital nomad for five months. I personally got a lot from this conversation. Uh, I hope you will have the same. Uh, if you have any f- feedback or comments, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at AKH. M double E S. Uh, one more thing before you go. Also, uh, there is a few f- audio glitches that shouldn't affect your experience. Enjoy the discussion. So, how are you doing today? And we, where are you calling from, by the way? Uh, I'm well. Alhamdulillah. I uh, I'm calling from Casablanca or Dar al Baida uh, in Morocco, uh, where I'm ending uh, about a, well, not a four week vacation, but two weeks vacation and. Uh, some remote work. So. Excellent. So you plan to go to Dublin next uh, week? Uh, actually, I'm going to go to Amsterdam first on Tuesday, inshallah. And then uh, next week, Saturday, I'll head to Dublin. Excellent. excellent. So wh- wh- why don't we start with like, uh, you tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Enes, uh, Enes Kudis. I uh, was born and raised in the Netherlands uh, near Amsterdam. My parents are immigrants from Morocco. Uh, I lived most of my life in the Netherlands. Uh, I've studied international uh, business. I went to study in Paris to get an additional bachelor's degree uh, where I spent about two years of my time. Uh, I specialize in different fields such as finance and marketing and anything that comes with business. Uh, I worked in marketing and finance and then I realized marketing is the way I wanted to go so I uh, left and uh, moved to London where I studied for a year to get my master's degree uh, and specialized in marketing and after that I joined Google in Dublin um, first as a as an associate to help small and medium businesses grow their uh, revenue through Google's online advertising solutions and then moving forward uh, I moved into an in-house marketing team that was uh, basically using marketing techniques to sell our uh, products. And after a while, uh, I think about three years in Dublin with Google, uh, I moved back to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, uh, where I worked for a company called Atlassian. It's a software uh, company that produces uh, products such as Jira, uh, HipChat, you name it. And there I was responsible for leading all the marketing efforts for non-English speaking markets. And um, yeah, it was a really exciting time. I got to uh, work as a digital nomad for about five months traveling uh, the world and working remotely. Uh, And then after that, I took a very short break before I rejoined Google, first in Amsterdam and then now again in Dublin, um, where I'm more focused on on developing uh, trainings and workshops uh, rather than than marketing. So that has been a career change uh, for me. Wow. What an introduction. I should learn from that. <laughs> so let's start. Like you, you come from a, a very diverse background. Um, I, I was thinking, like, what are the advantages and disadvantages for such a thing? Yeah. So um, I think there's two elements to my diverse background. The first one is the, uh, the one that is related to, like, society uh, and life. 
and then the other one is related to my educational and professional background. So I'll start with the social uh, uh, element, which is growing up being uh, a child of immigrants in the Netherlands, uh, growing up being Muslim in a Western uh, country where Islam is not the majority uh, religion. Um, I think the growing up in that position um, brings a lot of challenges with it um, because being an immigrant in, um, in, in, in Europe, especially if, you, if you're from immigrant parents that moved because of economical reasons and not uh, for, for anything else, uh, you generally already belong to the, uh, the, the lower economic uh, parts of society. So you're, you're in the lowest economical uh, sort of environment. So um, the environments you tend to live in are not ideal. The, uh, the resources you have available to educate yourself or to uh, escape the, the, I don't want to say poverty, but the, the lower economic uh, environment are, are not always as accessible uh, as somewhere else. And also growing up uh, in a household where you speak a different language, where you practice a different religion, where you uh, practice a different culture versus what you see outside at school, where you're surrounded by people that are not religious, or if they are religious, they're more uh, Christian, um, where you see different ways of life, where, you, where people speak different languages. That is a challenge on itself. And if um, your parents are not able to uh, help you um, navigate that, it can be extremely challenging and it can be um, and it can be very destructive for people in, in all honesty uh, but if, if you have parents or if you've been blessed by God by with a, with an ability to navigate that that, um, that challenging environment you can actually come out really really well because from a very young age you learn to to different cultures, you learn to speak multiple languages, you learn to uh, manage change, conflicts, uh, and lots of other uh, things that, that you will need in a future job, especially if you're joining tech companies where, where all of this is, is a requirement in the job. So you develop your brain in such a way that it can deal with constant change, with constant ambiguity. Um, you develop a lot of empathy because you understand how uh, different people um, think and, and feel and process things in, in different ways. Um, and so if, if done properly, if, if supported properly, um, you can grow to become a great leader, you know, in whichever field that is. It doesn't have to be in business. It can be in anything. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's two sides of it. There's one side where it's really, really challenging um, uh, because there's so many obstacles and a lot of people don't make it. Um, and on the other hand, there's, there's an, great opportunities as well with, with all the challenges that um, are coming. Um, so that, that is on the societal side. Do you, do you want me to give you the, the professional and educational? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, so I think from an educational um, and professional background, I think the diversity there uh, comes from maybe uh, the education, the locations I've studied. Um, I think what, um, I personally think that that can only be beneficial in a way because you really learn how uh, to navigate very, very different environments. Like studying in Amsterdam is completely different than studying in, in Paris and uh, very different from studying in London. So you learn, you learn how to, to navigate very different environments. And again, you continue to um, uh, learn how to deal with change, how to deal with ambiguity, um, especially because you're going to be challenged by, by, by uh, a lack of resources if, if, you're, not, if you're financing these things yourself. Um, so lots of, lots of challenges come your way and prepare you for 
um, how to manage the future. And I think people, for example, that didn't have that um, background where they had those challenges at a very young age could use this opportunity to create these challenges for themselves by going abroad and studying abroad. And if, 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 if their uh, environment and resources allow that, of course. Um, but it's, I think it is important to create those challenges if you've never had them in your life before because they will prepare you for the reality of, um, of, of work in the future. Excellent. Uh, just to double down in, in, uh, on your diverse background when it comes to society, did it give you a unique perspective on how you perceive life? Um, I think it did. It did. It did, and it still does. I think um, my perspective on life changes um, changes because I every year I grow and, and meet different people and, and experience different things and. Uh, gain more knowledge. So as I do that, my perspective on life changes. Um, I think one thing that I do feel I've um, I've sort of gained um, is because because I because I have all these different identities um, and because they're not acknowledged by uh, none of none of the societies I belong to. Like in the Netherlands, I'm looked at as a Moroccan. In Morocco, I'm looked at as a as a Dutch person and a, and a European. Um, so, so as a young as a young person, I already made the decision for myself that I'm not going to identify myself with either, like fully. Um, but I I identify myself as a Muslim because as a Muslim, I don't feel that I have to belong to a certain country or that I have to belong to a certain nationality. It can be anything, um, anything, and any anywhere, you know. Um, and so that gave me a lot of strength, to be honest, to manage that. Um, that struggle of identity and what, what, how I perceive life. So I always, whenever I felt um, I didn't belong to a certain um, identity, then then I would always have Islam uh, sort of as my as my main identity, you know, uh, up there. And I would always always cling to that and say, okay, yeah, I don't care that I'm that I'm a Moroccan in the Netherlands, and I don't care that in Morocco I'm a I'm a Dutch person. I can be all of those, but if it comes to grounding myself it, i know i can do that with islam because there it doesn't matter which nationality i have or which color i have etc cetera, etc cetera. i think that's the main one i would say and uh, the feel of belonging uh, is it something that you like reached out like recently or it's something that you uh got convinced about like early in your childhood um, I think I think as a child probably I was already aware of of it quite a bit uh, about being different, especially because your environment makes it very clear to you. Like your teachers, your uh, the, the other kids you go to school with, they they make they make a point to make it clear that you're different, and not just them, but also your parents. You know, because your parents tell you don't do these things because we're from this culture, we're from this, uh, we have this identity, so these are not things we should do. So from a very young age, you realize that you, that you're sort of in a limbo and you don't really uh, have a, a specific identity such as perhaps someone locally from somewhere would have. Um, and then, yes, you realize that, but you're not really consciously aware of it when you're a child and you're not consciously um, making adjustments to your life i think you do make i think you do unconsciously and subconsciously make make changes when you're young you know you you probably want to try and dress a certain way you probably uh, want to try and 
uh, think about how to do your hair in such a way that you maybe look more like the majority um, or behave in a certain way or speak in a certain way. So those things you do without really realizing that you're doing them or without acknowledging that you're doing them because you want to belong to a certain group. Um, but then, so, so yeah, you go through that, I think, as a child, you go through that as a, as a teenager. And then uh, as you grow older, you start to realize that you shouldn't seek for that identity in others, but that you should seek it inside yourself. And that's when, when that realization happens, um, we start making the changes that you make mostly for yourself, you know, and you try and uh, figure out for yourself how you can identify and feel comfortable with the identity that you have and be okay with maybe changing that identity as you go along, you know? So, um, I, and, and one thing for me, for example, um, that I, that I felt lately was that, um, I'm, I'm totally okay jumping from being Moroccan to being Dutch. And I, I started realizing that um, that's actually one of my strengths and my privileges that I can do that. And I won't let anyone take that away. So if I get, um, if I get criticized in the Netherlands, for example, for, not, for saying that I'm Moroccan at some point, then uh, I don't care because the same, I, my, my thing here is that as long as I'm being seen as a Moroccan in the Netherlands and I have the right to be Moroccan uh, and to use all the benefits that I can get out of being Moroccan and the same way for being Dutch like if I am in Morocco and people are asking me for example are you gonna uh, live here or are, do you feel more Moroccan or more Dutch and I say more Dutch and I don't I feel comfortable saying that without them um, leaning into it because how they perceive me is as more Dutch but their expectation of what I would respond is to say that I feel more Moroccan you know so so I, it's also about feeling confident about who who you are and which which nationalities and identities you own, you know, as you as you grow older, and um, yeah, so that's that's how I feel, and I'll, I'll see how it how it how it will be like in the future. You know, um, I, I'm sure things will change as we go forward and uh, move forward. Amazing, amazing. I think it takes a lot of courage to uh, reach to that realization and uh, to navigate those uh, uh, identity questions. I think you need. Uh, uh, as you said, yeah, like um, uh, um, maybe the, like the religion help you. I don't know. Uh, like there is must be like certain stuff in your life helped you to reach that realization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's almost like an awakening, you know. Um, and and for me, yeah, Islam definitely helped. It's 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 because it's I felt the message is universal. It's it's for everyone. It's not just for one group of people um and so ultimately it's the whole i think it's for me it was um my way of understanding that i'm a, a global citizen um that i'm a human being that i'm part of um this world uh, without without of course diminishing um the knowledge that that just because i'm part of this world and that i have a, that i'm a global citizen that i shouldn't that I should that I should continue to acknowledge that there are obviously a lot of challenges in this world, and uh, with regards to social justice and how uh, rights are distributed across the globe, etc. So uh, I am in a privileged position where I can say that I'm a global citizen, but I know a lot of people are not in that same same um, same position, you know, and they cannot say that. So I also, even though I feel that way, I also realize that that it's easy for me to say compared to maybe some others, uh, a lot of other people in the world. Amazing. I know you speak multiple languages with different levels of uh, proficiency, and I have a few questions rela related to that. 
So maybe we start the first one. What language do you had to learn because uh, of where you grew up uh, slash studied? Um, I think French, probably. Uh, French is the language that I really had to, um, to learn because um, I was studying it already from a young age, so from uh, secondary school and then in university as well. Um, and then I moved to France to study and um, I, I really had to learn the language. I, I, was not, I was not going to France just because I wanted to study there. It was a big portion of the reason why I went there was to learn French, to speak it. So I forced myself to speak it. And, um, and yeah, that, that would definitely be the language um, that, that I learned because I had to. Um, I would say English is, was, was natural because I always... Yeah, in the Netherlands, you you have to you just have to learn English, and then you get really good at it if you choose a path that would require you to constantly speak it. So for me, that was um, going to uh, to and studying um, an international program. So all of my courses were in English. All of the I I studied with the majority were not from the Netherlands. So uh, that really required me to also gets incredibly proficient, uh, fluent even in, in English. Um, and then yeah, Dutch, Dutch sort of was natural because I was born there and I went to school and then you immediately learn it. Uh, Rifia is my, is my native tongue, which is an Emezer or as you want, river uh, language uh, of North Morocco. So I learned that at home. And then Arabic I learned because um, my parents wanted to make sure that I could uh, read the Quran and that I could read uh, like our religious texts. And then Obviously, from there, I really love the language. I, I try to keep up with it, but it's challenging when you don't really have people around you that um, that can talk to you in, in Arabic so you can learn. But um, yeah, I'm often in Morocco. I'm often in the Middle East, and I try to practice as much as I can. Amazing. Uh, what language do you feel like you can express yourself uh, uh, freely or like the language that uh, you can easily find the words that... Uh, uh, you feel most expressive about it? Mm, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, I think it really depends on the situation, but I would say now it it's probably English. Um, uh, although it might be Dutch as well. Um, yeah, I honestly, I, I wouldn't be able to say. I think, I think it'll be uh, English and Dutch, but then uh, Dutch probably when it comes to very, very personal, personal um, expressions or maybe expressions where I have to use a lot of um, cultural references, you know, um, because I might be missing those in English. Um, and, and so, yeah, in, in Dutch probably, I forgot even what I think in. I think I, I think in, I think I think I think in Dutch. So, so, so I. It's probably Dutch. Yeah, probably it's Dutch because, I, yeah. If I have to go by what I think in, it's Dutch, and that's so. That means probably that's the easiest language for me to express myself. In. By the way, do you journal or a blog? Um, no, so no, not in the way that you probably ask. I I occasionally um, do like a, a quick quick. Um, quick thing where I just, before going to bed or in the morning, uh, write down like three, three things to clear my mind or to, to start my day, but not, nothing, nothing proper, you know? 
Uh, and uh, in, in which language do you write those? English. Yeah, so that I do in English. <laughs> okay, that's interesting because yeah. like uh, uh, for me, like as a, 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 as a bilingual and I learned English very late, I find myself uh, alternating between Arabic and language yeah, and Arabic and English. Uh, yeah. for some ideas uh, are like um, um, for some thoughts, I feel comfortable thinking in English and some, for some of them, uh, especially the personal stuff, I feel uh, uh, comfortable uh, writing them in Arabic or thinking them in Arabic. And I'm always interested in on like how your brains, uh, brains like think when it, with these languages. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, because it, I think when it comes to writing things down, I, I always prefer to to do that in English unless it needs to be written, read, read by someone who's Dutch. Like even my grocery list, for example, I, I like to just write in English. Um, but then when it comes to my thoughts, they are actually in Dutch. And and then when when you know when uh, from a re religious perspective when I think about for example uh, my my relationship with God I always feel weird not doing that in Arabic you know so I I, I do it in Arabic even though I know it doesn't have to be uh, and then when I don't know the words or when I don't know the the language to use I switch to Rifi um, for some reason because I think subconsciously I think that's closer to Arabic but even though it's not. Um, so so yeah, it's it's like um, it's it's funny how it works in, in the mind, uh, but um, but yeah, overall, I guess it's Dutch because that's what I think it. But again, if I would write if I would write a, write a blog or if I would write uh, or if I journal, I would do it in English and especially blog because if it's meant to reach an audience, um, I, I want I, I want to have a bigger audience than just uh, the Dutch uh, just Dutch speakers. Excellent. It's funny what you mentioned, like, what, how do you communicate to uh, God during prayers? For me, sometimes, like, I do it with Al-Fusha, right? And sometimes, like, I do slang. It's, it's, it's like an internal battle between me, like, how do you speak to, uh, to God? At the same time, there is certain stuff that you don't know, like, uh, the, the right words to use. So it, it's, uh, it's something that, like, I feel uh, I, I go back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I think it's a common thing, probably, that people people have. Even though we don't, we can just speak in any language or not speak at all, you know, um, and just have thoughts. But um, yeah. yeah. So hypothetically speaking, if you have to keep two languages, what those language would be? Languages would be. Um. That's a good one. So definitely English, um, not because I think that it's a great language but just because it's the m most practical uh, and would help me quite significantly um uh, i would cut out dutch um i would unfortunately cut out rifia even though it's 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 a really important language for me because it's it's like it what keeps me tied to the the amazon uh, culture and identity um, but I would cut it because it's it's only useful for for a very very small uh, group, and then I feel French I would cut out as well, even though it's a beautiful language. Um, it's it's not spoken by a really large group compared to other languages, and um, and it's also yeah, and, and more and more people in France start to speak English as well, 
and then I think I would want to keep Arabic and and not just because from a factual perspective that um, that it's spoken by a lot of people in the world um, in, a, in, a, in a big region and I would want to hopefully end up living in one of uh, in, in the region you know uh, so I would want to continue to speak it but also I think from a religious perspective I don't think people should 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 learn Arabic to be able to be Muslim. And I absolutely am not someone who thinks that um, you can't be a, a good Muslim uh, if you don't speak Arabic. But um, I think for me personally, I think it's, um, it's beneficial to be able to read things myself and research things myself uh, in religious textbooks and, uh, and whatnot that have been written in, in Arabic or, or listening to, to things such as Quran and and really understand not everything, but understand the high level meaning of things. You know, I think I wouldn't want to get, um, I wouldn't want to miss those things, you know? So I, I would say English and, and Arabic. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so when it comes to the way that you are uh, perceived, uh, uh, most importantly in two settings, like the language in general, one in a day to day settings. So for example, if you are in a village somewhere and uh, the people there speak Dutch, uh, uh, or for example in a business settings where, like, because you, you because you are speaking that specific language, you are able to create that personal connection. Can you talk about like how languages uh, like uh, change your experience in life? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I think um, I think I think definitely if you speak a language of a local community, then they warm up to you quicker. Um, I think they're much more appreciative than if they have to be the ones that need to make the effort to speak to you in a certain language. Uh, for the few um, exceptions where people really really want to to learn a language and they start. They would prefer speaking English to you than the local language, you know. Um, uh, but those moments are rare. But um, yeah, I definitely think that that having a local language and making the effort to speak it is very much um, um, appreciated by by the community. Um, uh, for example, I'll give you a few examples. So one personal example is that um, my family in Morocco, uh, who all speak Rifia, um, they all are so grateful that my parents taught us uh, Rifia because um, a lot of a lot of kids that grew up in in Europe I don't know how many but there are there are quite a few that don't get to learn uh, Rifia because the country they're in is just very strict on which languages they need to learn such as France like in France you have to speak French everywhere constantly and there's a big uh, big taboo on speaking any other language than French so um, especially immigrant kids from from France wouldn't necessarily speak Rifia or any other language other than, than French, and they really struggle to communicate with them. And just for me to be able to sit sit at the table and have have conversations and adult conversations and discussions and debates about things in Rifia really really is appreciated by by my family. Uh, um, and I think that they're very happy that we can we can communicate with each other in that way. Um, and my grandmother, Mayor Sol, rest in peace, who, who was always happy to be able to communicate with us. Um, so I think that's one. And the other thing is, um, so when I when I 
was I had this one role where I would uh, go out and deliver trainings in different locations. And mostly those trainings would be in English. But then when I would travel to the Netherlands, um, even though the presentation would be uh, written in English, I would do it in Dutch. And um, even though everyone in the Netherlands is absolutely fine speaking, um, speaking English and understanding English, we did it in Dutch and, and was appreciated, you know, um, uh, because you could make the connection. There's a stronger connection. They feel like they've been given something unique. So as if even almost as if the company had given them uh, someone who um, who speaks Dutch and uh, that's the reason why they sent them there, you know, so they feel very valued and very appreciated. Um, and and yeah, it, it, I think it, it just gives you a lot of... Um, it gives you access to a lot of things, uh, a lot of things. And I heard, I heard this from another friend who actually, uh, she went, uh, she's from New York and her friend, her friend is also from New York and he, her friend learned to speak Indonesian and they went to travel in Indonesia and they were shocked that he was able to speak it, but they loved it so much that they got access to so much things, you know, that they became friends with the locals and uh, they, they, they did things that they would probably have not been able to do if, if they didn't speak the language. So, um, so yeah, I think it has, it, it definitely comes with advantages um, uh, to speak it and, and it's, it, it allows you to connect better with, with, uh, with people in a way too. Yeah, it, it, it's it's always more than uh, a language. It's like an, uh, what you said, it's an access to a culture. That thing yeah. is what make it uh, really valuable. Absolutely, I, I agree with you. Actually, you made me think of this ad advertisement that I saw on Instagram uh, yesterday. Um, it was really funny because um, that I don't even know if it's if it works or not. It looked like a scammy ad, but um, you saw these people walking around with this little machine. Mm -hmm. um, that can translate um, in real life. So you say, for example, um, hey, I'm lost. Can you help me with directions in, your, in Japan? And you, uh, you let the machine translate it and the voice will say the same thing in Japanese. Uh, and so they were showing how it worked. And this person um, would say those things and then uh, the, the machine would say, and, and then you would see the Japanese people like look, at the person blank and then the machine would say those things they'd be like wow and then like very surprised and shocked and laugh and uh show very different emotions you know and i think yeah like you said it's it's a cultural thing it's it's more than language it's um it's something that that brings out things in people and that connects us uh through emotions you know so um i agree with you wow uh, moving into uh, education, as you mentioned earlier, you did your undergrad in <clears throat> in the Netherlands, and then you did your postgrad in the UK. So, can you talk briefly on the main differences between the two education systems? Yeah. So, actually, I did my undergrad in uh, Amsterdam and Paris. So oh. it was a degree program. Yeah, and um, and then yes, my masters in in London. So the there's actually major differences between all three. Um, first of all, in the Netherlands, we are very privileged to have um, a very, very affordable, high quality education. So um, what happens is that everyone, regardless of which, um, which, which educational path you choose, pays the same amount of money. And that amount back then was, I think, around 1,000 uh, 600 US dollars. Like I'm saying it in US dollars, so it's a bit of a, a clear of, of what, it, what it is uh, for an entire year. 
and it doesn't it doesn't matter if you study business english arabic or medicine, medicine or yeah medicine uh engineering you know it's all the same wow. the same the only co- the, the that's the fixed cost and then the variable costs are obviously obviously the um, the the equipment you need and the the books you need so those are separate costs but the government in the netherlands um back then i don't know exactly how it is right now but the government in the netherlands has this um system in place where they finance you as well while you you study so first of all you get um a card which allows you to travel for free in public transportation um and you can pick whether you want to you want to do that from monday to friday or the weekends so if you choose monday to friday it's free to travel all the time um, with um, with that card everywhere in the Netherlands uh, through all public transportation. And then on Saturday and Sunday and during bank holidays, you get a, a, a significant discount to travel. For those who choose the weekend, it's the opposite. And the reason why is because some people, uh, they go and live in the city where they study and so they don't really need to travel from Monday to Friday, but they want to travel back home during the weekend, you know, so they, they choose that option. Uh, the second thing is that they give you a stipend. So on a monthly basis, you get... Um, a base uh, stipend, which um, is the same for everyone. And then you get uh, an additional um, amount of money. And that is based on how much your parents earn. And it can be nothing if your parents are incredibly wealthy, uh, or it can be the maximum amount. And the maximum amount, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was significant enough uh, to allow you to finance your studies and your books and um, etc. And then also, if you live um, if you live outside of your parents' home, so if you decide to live on, in, on your own, you those amounts will almost double, you know, because then you have more uh, costs and uh, you can hopefully finance uh, those things. So wow. uh, from a financing perspective, and, and I'm saying all this and this seems amazing, but I, I, I still feel it should be... It should be better than this, you know? I feel education should be either completely free or it should be much, much more affordable and there shouldn't be any loans and whatever not. But anyways, this is a system in the Netherlands. And then in terms of education, the education is pretty pretty high quality. Um, there is, as soon as you get out of secondary school, there's um, you, you as an individual are, are responsible to own your education. So there's no one that's going to drag you along or anything like that. You come to school, great. You don't come to school. You don't pass your exams. You're out. You get a letter and you're, you're done, you know? So it's really not a system where, <clears throat> where people will drag you along. No, you have to do everything yourself. The only thing that you uh, get is, is uh, classes, uh, workshops, teamwork, projects, uh, all of those things. You'll get the support. If you need more support, you have to go and ask for it yourself. But it's very, very individual, very... Uh, focused on self-learning, uh, being critical uh, thinker, uh, and all of that, you know. So um, that is the Netherlands. Um, in Paris, so I can't speak for the entirety of Paris because I know that they have universities that are free, um, public universities, but I also know that they have a very uh, elitist uh, system in place, which I benefited from because my school had that relationship with um, the school, and they they have. Um, uh, what they call the the, the grande école, which are uh, schools you can go to, business schools that you can go to after doing prep school. And prep school is expensive and it's very intense. They spend like two years, I think, after um, secondary school to really work on their math skills and whatever skills. And then they all try to get into the best uh, grande école. Um, and then if they get into the, those grande écoles, it's it's party for life because they the, the biggest... 
uh, hurdle was the prep school, you know, into this school. And so once they're in, they feel like they're already done. Uh, they just need to follow the courses and that's it. So the mentality of the students is very different because they're just there to, to pass the courses as quickly as possible, have the brand on their, um, on their CV and, um, and just have a lot of fun while at um, I noticed that the quality of education uh, at school, so I went to one of those um, yeah, top five business schools in Paris, um, which are more expensive, but I didn't have to pay for it uh, because of the relationship between uh, uh, the Dutch school and this school, uh, but they're more expensive. Um, they're very, yeah, they're very elite. You have a, a very privileged um, uh, audience of, of students that come there that come from wealthy families. Um, and the teachers tend to be very very high-end, very good professors that they have that they teach you. But the quality of education, I felt, was similar to the one I received in the Netherlands. It, was, it wasn't worse and wasn't uh, better. It was just the same type of quality. The only difference that I think um, uh, this school made to my life and experience is that because you are in an environment that, is, that has a lot of students that are very well-off and that are very uh, well-connected through their families and stuff, you build a network that... Um, you don't necessarily get like in schools in, in the Netherlands uh, because it's a much more diverse and much more uh, equal sort of environment, you know, and uh, the, the level of your wealth doesn't immediately, or it plays a role, but it doesn't play as much of a role as it does in, in the school that I went to in Paris. Uh, and the other thing is that they are very, very supportive of their students. So uh, they have a very strong alumni network um, they invest a lot in international relations. So you have all these different uh, disciplines within the school <clears throat> that are not related to being taught that help you with your career. So they do, they do these uh, career forums at school. Uh, they bring in like some of the biggest, biggest uh, uh, businesses to, to attend the school for three days where they show themselves where you can offer your CVs. They have a big CV database. Uh, they have a careers office that will help you uh, write your CV, your motivation letter. You'll get like workshops on how to brand yourself. Um, so it's 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 like you're pretty much in a you're still being held by your hand, you know, to do all of those things and um, and and really be successful. Um, and that's I think why you probably have to pay so much for for all of those things um, in in Paris. And then um, in London, um, so I, I went to Cass Business School, which is part of City University London. And because it's a master's program and I'm an international student, it was by default uh, pretty, pretty expensive. And um, I must say, though, that the quality of education was outstanding. Um, not just the, the type of education we were getting, but just the rigor, um, the, the challenging curriculum that we had, and the way. Um, everything was assessed. You really felt that at the end of it, that you got your degree, that you really deserved that degree. There, it was very strict. So exams were, uh, were you had, a, you had a, a minimum pass grade that was high. The, the grades you got were never extremely high. You know, they were always like, if you got a 70%, you should already be incredibly happy. The way exams were corrected um, were, was done anonymously and were checked or triple checked by other teachers. Um, and there were quite a significant number of people that didn't pass, you know, that didn't get wow. a, a that didn't get a degree, you know. So there's no there's no one there telling you, oh, you paid so much money, so you'll guarantee get a degree. No. So uh, there were I think seven people or so that didn't manage to get their out degree. Of, 
uh, we were, I think, a hundred something. Mm. So for me, it's a significant number because I, I normally, so in the Netherlands, how it works, you start maybe at the beginning with like 400 students. And then at graduation, you have maybe like 50, 60 people left because people either dropped off or they've chosen different paths or um, whatever. In Paris, like everyone graduated. There was no one that uh, didn't make it through because like it's, it's just such a, a holding hands kind of uh, environment where you'd have to work really hard to fill. And in London, that was not the case at all. It was like a mix of it's your responsibility and these are the strict rules and you need to follow these strict rules, you know? Um, and yeah, the quality of education was really amazing. The networking was really well. And we had all the services that we had in Paris as well. So we had a, a careers team that really worked hard to help you get a job after. Uh, we had like regular workshops on how to brand yourself, how to write your CV, how to write your motivation letter, how to go to interviews. You could book sessions with consultants that uh, would allow you to, uh, to learn how to do interviews and whatnot. So it wasn't just the education piece it was also the entire support system that uh, they built next to the day-to-day -day education that you get um, and the networking obviously uh, because you have an international environment London is very very popular amongst students everywhere so we have people from obviously Saudi from uh, the Gulf region from North Africa um, uh, everywhere in the world America you think about it and and that network is it's pretty pretty great to have and it, and it benefits you still now you know because if I would look for a new job I would tap into my network first to see where people are whether there's interesting jobs there uh, and whatnot um, but in terms of of most equitable um, education system I would say the Netherlands is definitely the best because the the fact that you don't have to pay that much and still get a really really good education is is just it's it's an incredible privilege you know an incredible 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 privilege that we should not underestimate um to be honest i, I i'm not sure internationally like in europe why i have this perception of uh like uk's number one or if this perception is international like I feel, I, I kind of have this feeling that Netherlands is like underestimated in that quality of the education, and uh, most importantly, like the value for the dollar that you get, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I do, I do think it's a, a brand probably that um, that the UK is built right because they have Oxford, they have uh, mm. Cambridge, they. Uh, they produce a lot of scholars. They they were an important empire, um, and also I think that um, uh, this is a tendency we human beings have. Right, whenever something is expensive, we also assume that it must be good. You know, um, and in some cases that's true. But um, I personally do think that um, that a lot of the goodness comes from um, the additional value adds that they bring to an educational system. So I don't think the education itself is necessarily better because if I look at the Netherlands, like I said, I feel across the board, I receive the same quality of education, the, the same uh, quality of teachers. So uh, I would have as many bad teachers as I would have in any country and I would have as many good teachers uh, as I would have in a, any country. Um, and so, so all of that, I feel it's very subjective and it's very up to how you like to learn and how you enjoy uh, your environment. But I felt the quality was on par everywhere. It's just the, the whole environment around it. So the, the additional services that you get, the way they correct your exams, 
um, whether you are allowed to do resuits or not. So in, in, in school in London, for example, you would just, would just have one opportunity if you fail again, you lost the opportunity to get your diploma. Um, if you wanted to pass, you needed to have a pass for all, all courses. You could only have, I think, one course that wasn't a pass or like was a, a 50%, but then you'd have to compensate it with a higher grade and something else. So, so that strictness, uh, I think added more to the quality of um, of, of the, the degree, but not necessarily to what you've learned, you know? So I'm obviously, yeah, I, I, I can't make any um, objective statements about this because I, I didn't research this, but just from my experience, I feel it's probably, it, ha it has a lot to do with branding, I think especially when I look at where, where, where I work, for example, I work with people that, that have been to Harvard, that have been to some schools that, have, that are being considered the best in the world, Stanford and whatever. And I don't feel necessarily that they are any better than someone who went to a public school in, in Paris, you know? Um, I feel that the levels of intelligence or the levels of collaboration or the levels of whatever are, are equally good. Um, and that's not to diminish the the quality of those schools because they they are excellent schools but um it's just to say that i think a lot of it has to do with individuals themselves as well you know rather than totally just... agree totally agree it's like about the the type of people that go to that certain places exactly yeah amazing um since you worked in tech and like you studied marketing uh i guess like in google and atlassian all tech yeah, if you go back in time. Would you um, change your major? Um, so, so I know in, the, in Saudi probably you have a very similar system to the US and how to study. Um, yeah. In 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 the Netherlands, I think, and in Europe, maybe in general, we don't really have the major minors uh, the major system. So. At least in the Netherlands, you from a very young age, they already push you into a certain direction, right? So in secondary school, you already have to pick subjects and drop subjects. And so from a very young age, you actually already realize, okay, I'm not going to do any science degree. I'm not uh. going to do any arts degree. Or you have to pick subjects and drop subjects really early, right? So um, I, looking back... Um, I enjoy what I'm doing. I, I'm, I don't regret the, the, the choices that I've made. But looking back and knowing myself better, I think I would have chosen a different career path, yes. Uh, I think back then I was very much driven by um, trying to escape the, the lower economic environment and finding the quickest way to do that. And I thought that going into business and back then in finance would be the way to go to, to be wealthy as quickly as possible. Um, and I think as I grew older, I realized that that's not really the best way to think about how you want to build your, your career. And so I made the switch to marketing, which was already uh, a discipline within uh, the business world that was more appealing to me because it, it deals with consumer behavior and how you can respond to that with communication. And it's, it's much more, I feel it's, it's close to maybe social studies, maybe close to psychology, um, elements that are more... Uh, related to creativity um, and as I grow older now I, I want to move more into education and I think that's also partly driven by the fact that uh, I think I, I enjoy um, I enjoy work that allows me to help uh, people and that helps me to 
help others grow and help things grow, whether they're businesses or anything like that. And just thinking about that and, and realizing that I think maybe if I knew that back then I would have chosen for a degree in psychology or a degree in psych, uh, psychi psychiatry um, or maybe even social, uh, social help, uh, perhaps a, a teacher in, in, uh, in, 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 uh, in higher education, so university teacher or researcher or anything like that. Um, so that, that would be probably the path that I would have chosen knowing what I know now. Um, but who knows, maybe I'll still choose that path. I don't, I don't think that, uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm done with, um, with learning and studying and whatnot. So. Yeah. And, uh, with the online learning, I guess, with bugs, with like, it's always depends on the level that you want to get into, right? Like, do you want to just an exposure or you want to have a skill in that subject or do you want to practice it? Like there's yeah. multiple paths to uh, pursue uh, different interests. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so since you like forecaster marketing uh, uh, and business in the postgrad and the undergrad, uh, and later you joined the industry with Google and Atlassian, um, do you see a gap? And here we talk specifically about marketing. Do you see a gap between what's been taught and what the industry want? Yes, major gap, I would say. Um, I think that, so two things. The first one is the gap. So I think there's a big gap between what um, companies are doing now and what's being taught in school. It doesn't mean that what is being taught in school is not the right thing. It is because I think in school you get to learn the fundamentals of marketing and I think those can be incredibly beneficial. So understanding the theoretical frameworks uh, uh, like Cutler's uh, marketing Bible pretty much uh, is a key, key um, piece of work that I think every marketer should be aware of as a base to understand how they need to approach marketing. But I do feel that there's also a very, very practical element on how to do day-to-day -day marketing especially um now that marketing is moving more towards or not moving more it's become it's it's like the new marketing is it's is measurable it's uh, very tactical it's very um very intelligent and i think that that um yeah schools are not preparing um students to be able to to manage that i think that there are some very very tactical skills that um uh, students need to learn, uh, such as how to use uh, Google's advertising solutions, how to use Facebook's advertising solutions, how to w pretty much all social media or all uh, online advertising solutions, like trying to teach them basics on how those work and how those function. And, and I know that that's not really the role of, uh, of academics because they, 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 they think more about uh, the questions around frameworks and whatnot, but I do think that there's um, a gap there because where else will they, will they learn that? And I've seen that a lot with wor working with, uh, with advertising agencies because their number one challenge is finding talent. They can just not find any talent. And as soon as they find people that are talented, they either take them from other agencies and those agencies then get upset because they've spent a lot of time training them and then losing that talent because it's incredibly hard to find new talent that can already do the, the work. So I think there's a major gap there. Uh, the second thing I think is, um, is not so, it's not so much a gap. Um, 
and it's it's more related to uh, the fact that uh, in in I feel that in in business school, especially I don't know what it's like in other schools, but in business school, I feel we're being taught uh, how to be a leader, you know, how to manage a corporation, how to develop strategy, how to uh, do things that you don't really get to do in your first five years of your career in a, in a company. Um, you only get to do those things once you're um, very senior, you know? Um, and I think, again, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be learning those things, but I do think that um, there's a gap, I feel, uh, where there, there, nobody's telling you this is not what you will be doing when you go to... Uh, when you go to work in your first job and setting the expectations right, you know, there's a good chance that your first job will be a customer services job. It will be a, a sales job, uh, uh, a business development type of job, somewhere where you'll do routine tasks for a while, you know? And I think that business school, even undergrad, um, teaches you to become um, more of a leader, someone who's going to be developing strategy, who's going to set up businesses, who's going to uh, be like a product manager immediately. And I think that that can be very, um, very misleading in a way. Interesting. Um, business and marketing as a taught subject. Uh, there is a debate on whether a marketing and business people like are suitable and can be plugged in in any industry regardless of their expertise in the field a b like uh, there is like a thought on okay take uh, engineers and the product owners and teach them like business and marketing and they would be a better fit so what's your take on that like uh, what's your take on whether like you agree more with the B or A or, or B or like you feel it depends on the company. What's your take on the whole situation? Can you repeat for me what A is? So A, like you have the people coming from business and marketing that yeah. they can be, yeah. And B, like uh, the engineers, the product owner that you want them to go into business. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so that's a difficult one to be honest. Um, though I, I, because I've worked in the tech industry only, and the, the, um, the yeah, the heavy tech industry only, I've seen this a lot. So my first job, actually, marketing was in um, was at GE, uh, GE Healthcare, uh, where they produced uh, um, radio radiographs and CT scanners and all of those things. Uh, so it's very heavy industry, healthcare industry. Uh, uh, marketing and um, what I've noticed there was that uh, that there was a healthy mix. So, out of the three leaders that were in our team, uh, one of them had a medical background. So they they didn't study business; they studied uh, medicine or anything uh, related to that, and then learned business as a, a subject. Perhaps even did an MBA. I don't remember. And the other two leaders uh, were actually business uh, had business backgrounds, and then they learned. Um, they learned the subject matter and stayed in that industry, so they got the expertise from that industry. Um, and I don't feel that one had an advantage over the other. Uh, I think that um, that they that they all performed well enough, and that they all did a great job. Um, and I'm sure that at some points there will be some. Uh, advantages for one over the other. So I'm sure that if, for example, one of the leaders is talking to doctors, that it's easier to communicate with them in their own language. Uh, but then when it comes to maybe 
um, communicating with internal stakeholders such as salespeople, maybe the business person would be able to deal with those things in a better way. I think um, I think either either work really fine. Uh, I think um, the profiles the profiles uh, shouldn't shouldn't be much of a of an issue. I think what is probably just important that the company tries to diversify the the, the employees so that when they work with each other they can they can close the gaps uh, of knowledge, you know? So if you have someone that comes from a medical industry in this specific case, it's great because that person could maybe help help the other team members uh, better understand what's going on there. And from a business perspective, they help the other person uh, get to understand things better uh, as well. Uh, so my perspective would be higher diversity. So yes, hire people with an engineering background that have studied business, uh, but also hire business people um, and teach them how to understand the industry they work in. Um, I do know though that, um, especially in France, I've noticed this, that, the, that there is a very, very, very great interest from companies to hire engineers with a business background you know so the reasoning behind that is that they feel they have a very analytical logical mindset uh and they want that applied to um to the way they do business you know and uh yeah i i'm personally i'm personally not not a um uh, not for that, uh, except if they, the, again, diversify the teams. I think it's important to have those people in there as well to provide that perspective, but I think it's equally important to make sure that you have people maybe from social uh, studies backgrounds, you know, who have more of a creative way of thinking, more of a, uh, uh, an empathetic way of, uh, of, of dealing with work, um, et cetera, to bring those in as well. So you have a very diverse way of looking at things. Uh, I don't think a business will benefit from having solely uh, very analytical people on something or solely very creative people on something. I think a, a balance or mix of those is, is the right way to go. Yeah, I think uh, now, uh, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I, I kind of read somewhere that now consulting company started to realize that and they, they uh, focus now on hiring people with like different backgrounds and like they give them those skills or, or, or preferably with like they have a business mindset but they come like from all kinds of backgrounds and they make them work uh, as a team awesome if you if you if you happen to stumble upon that um that article please send it because i'm um, i'm i would love to read some more on that actually it's a topic i'm interested in Definitely. So in terms of uh, like uh, the work environment, uh, can you talk a bit about the main differences by like working in Atlassian first working for Google, uh, mostly about the size, like how does it feel working for a company with, I think Atlassian around 3000 employees versus like 10,000 10, with Google? Yeah. yeah, so there's a major difference, I think. Um, Atlassian is... Um, I, th I think it's already it's 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 beyond startup I would say right now. But um, when I worked there, I felt that um, that I was pretty much the only one that was doing my job, you know. So um, I felt that I had a lot of responsibility and um, and a lot of scope as well. So I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't just focus on one little thing and and perfect that little thing. No, I would work on a lot of things at the same time and trying to constantly prioritize what. What is most important? What what is most impact, impactful? 
um, and you were giving that responsibility, you were being appreciated for that responsibility. And also as a result, you had a lot of, um, uh, uh, you had you had a lot of transparency because the, because there weren't as many people working there, uh, you had access to, to leadership all the way to the CEO, which which was uh, pretty easy to um, uh, to get that access to, you know. And um, so, yeah, lots of responsibility, lots of um, uh, ownership, uh, which makes it obviously also very very challenging because not everyone there's no one almost to ask um, how to do certain things. They will help you as much as they can, but at the end, you need to figure it out yourself and. Um, and that can be challenging. Uh, on the other hand, at Google, I think that um, the roles are, the jobs are really, really challenging, and um, they solve for something very specific, um, but you don't get the guidelines to go and figure out how to, how to solve it. You know, there's a lot of ambiguity, and you need to be able to deal with that ambiguity. Um, but there might be, but there also might be a very, very real chance that what you're working on is already been being worked on by six other people across the globe. So the, the idea here is that you just start working on what you need to be working on, and then as you go along, navigate that complexity that, um, that happens where you find out that someone in, in APAC or in Latin America is working on it and bring those people together to figure out a way to move things forward and ensuring that there's a scalable uh, project out there. I think the other thing also is that with Google, uh, depending on your role, of course, but in my role, uh, a lot of it has to be um, with a global perspective in mind, right? So I can't just produce something that will work only in the Netherlands or in the UK. It needs to be, it needs, it needs to work across the globe. So a lot of the complexity at Google, I think, comes from um, the fact that you need to think global, you need to think uh, scalable, you need to think uh, 10x impact, um, and you really need to be very, very much uh, aware of all the stakeholders internally uh, and bringing them on board and getting their buy-in and ensuring that all of them um, want to move the project uh, forward. I think that those things weren't as much the case uh, at Atlassian, even though they were the case, but but I think I felt that people had much less say in what, what you were working on because they didn't have that expertise. Whereas at Google, I think there's a good chance that a lot of people have a say, have a say and they have an, uh, an idea and, and, and expertise and um, a thought on how to do things. And again, I speak, I speak just on, on my role specifically. You know, I can't really speak for all the, the roles within Google um, because there are teams that are very similar to Atlassian that function almost as a little, little startup within the company. And there are teams where the roles are really rigid. So it's clear what your job is and you just stick to the job. For example, in sales, you just know your clients are awake from, let's say, 9 to 6. Um, you come in from 9 to 6 to make sure that all your calls, all your sales pitches are done within those hours. Uh, that you log everything, that within a quarter's time you, you reach your goals, you measure them, and then you do the same thing the next quarter, and the next quarter, and the next quarter. So it really depends on, uh, on the job you have. And I'm sure that in engineering and in people operations and in design, all of those disciplines, things are, are very, very different. Um, I think one big thing about Atlassian, which I felt was a difference, is that um, there was even more transparency than there is at Google, and Google is already extremely transparent with its, uh, with its employees. Uh, and I think that just has to do with the fact that Atlassian back then was still, uh, still small. And, um, and I think, yeah, when I started, we didn't go public yet. So, so I think there was uh, much less worry about like, um, 
being open and sharing everything with everyone. So, uh, and as long, I think, I guess as long as, 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 as like people can trust one another, uh, not to share any of the, that information outside, uh, that culture can probably be kept. But if, as you grow and you become bigger, I think it, it's going to be more and more challenging to, to, to keep that going. Cool. Cool. Uh, I'm always interested in about the brand and how people react to your uh, credentials in a professional environment. Um, I guess my question, do you feel having Google in your resume uh, opened a lot of doors for you? Um, I definitely think so, yes. Um, I do think that it has the, the Harvard effect, you know? Um, so it, it doesn't mean that you get all the jobs you want, right? It, but it does mean that maybe... Um, a recruiter will will read your CV, um, or maybe read, your, or if if they notice the the brand there, that they would actually take more time reading your CV. Let's say if uh, on average a recruiter looks like ten seconds at a CV, I would assume that if if it has if it has the right brands on there, that they would take like thirteen or fourteen seconds. You know, uh, so I definitely think that that helps, um, but I don't think it it necessarily. Like once you get into the interview rounds, I don't think it gives you more of an advantage than 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 someone else who's interviewing better than you do or that has more relevant experience to what you're doing or not. Um, the the thing that I noticed when I left Google and joined Atlassian is that um, I did I didn't know anything about Atlassian. I didn't know who they were. I never used their products before I joined them, um, but. So like if I were a recruiter and I didn't know the company, I would just assume it's just a random company. But then when I worked there, I was incredibly impressed with the talent that was working there, with how um, incredibly well they were at their jobs and uh, how intelligent uh, they are. And I didn't see any difference with how, how that was the case with Google, you know? So um, for me, that was a real eye-opener into understanding like, there's there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of intelligent people out there uh, that are doing amazing things. Um, and just because, yeah, you have a name attached to, to you or a brand attached to you doesn't mean that you're necessarily the, the most qualified person for a specific role. And it's, again, what I said about the schools. You know, I went to three schools. Nobody knows my Dutch school, but everyone knows my um, my Parisian and, and London school. Um, and they would automatically assume that that's where that's why I'm uh, doing what I'm doing right now but I think that my Dutch school is equally um, yeah can equally be credited for that you know because I learned a lot from that school uh, as well as much equally as much as I learned from the other ones so again I think it's very yeah it, it gives you it gives you that advantage of being looked at um, and if you get in, it can also be a disadvantage because you're being measured at a, at a, at a you're probably being looked at and, and the expectations are higher from, for you because, oh, that person went to Google or the, oh, that person went to Harvard, so they must be extremely uh, smart. So it, it'll probably be harder to meet expectations. But, um, but yeah, I do think that it's an advantage to have. Not, yeah, not going to lie about that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now moving to my favorite topic and it actually reminded me how we met yeah. uh, at the end of july 2016 you left a beautiful empty office at a nice office in uh amsterdam to work and travel around the world aka yeah. being a digital uh, nomad huh? 
so can you speak a bit out like how it started uh, uh, what got you into it the whole thing yeah absolutely um, so I was I think at the time I was starting to think about it was uh, when I uh, when I was with Atlassian for about two two years I'd say um, my role didn't my role changed quite a lot but it didn't move upward you know where i felt like okay this is i need i need to grow my career and this is where i want to head and it was just not happening uh, the way i wanted it to happen and it seemed that there was an opportunity for it to happen in the future but it wasn't that moment yet so i was trying to find uh, new ways to make my work life more interesting and more rewarding and i spoke to my manager back then and um it was just really challenging to find ways to do that especially because a lot of those things would mean that I would have to move to uh, to San Francisco, which I didn't want. Um, and so one of the things that I'd suggested was to perhaps work and travel uh, at the same time because my entire team was based in San Francisco and I was alone in Amsterdam. So I, I positioned it as, well, there's nothing going to change for you because I, I'd still be doing my job and I'd still be connected with all of you, but then from different locations instead of the office. And I think my manager was a bit hesitant towards it, but um, what I did is uh, I, I went to speak to HR, I went to speak uh, to uh, some other uh, team members in Amsterdam just to figure out like whether this would actually be possible or not from a legal point of view and from uh, uh, is it safe for the company point of view. And uh, luckily all of, like said, this is what you need to look at. If all of those criteria are met, then you can go ahead and do it. And so that's what I, what I presented to my manager and then uh, he went ahead and approved it as well. So I started, um, yeah, and so, so it started and I, um, I kicked off by going to Paris first. I wanted to take it easy. So I thought I'll start with a month somewhere so that I have a fixed place. I can rent, um, rent an apartment and like build um, some sort of um, uh, routine. And I think that was a really, really smart idea because I realized that as soon as you get out of an office environment then you lose your routine, that you, um, you need to start from scratch again. And that can be pretty, uh, pretty intense. But uh, because I arrived and had this whole month, the first thing I did was, okay, um, let, me, let me create my schedule. Let me ensure that I know where it's, my supermarkets are. Let me find out on the first day where the gym is. Let me know uh, the first time where all of these things are that I, that I need to be part of, you know? And I uh, made that a habit as I traveled everywhere, you know? Like I made sure that on the first day I, I checked off all of those things. I obviously would research them online first, but I would always try to, to, to get those things uh, uh, done immediately. And... Um, yeah, so that's what I, how it kicked off. And then I, I would try and stay for a month somewhere, but uh, in some occasions I did two weeks or a week or a few days, depending on, on where I was. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of my most amazing experiences, I would say, uh, uh, in my professional career. How long it lasted? It lasted four or five months in my case. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um... So what did you learn about yourself after doing that? Um, so I learned two major things. I think the first thing is that I learned that I really enjoy working independently and that I can be extremely productive, uh, even more productive than I am at the office. Uh, because, and I think, I, I think I'm driven by reward. So uh, at the office, I don't really see that 
much reward. But when I'm traveling, my reward is let me finish quickly so I can enjoy this new place that I'm in, you know? So I would be very focused, very productive, and I would finish quickly with my work so that I can spend the, the rest of the time enjoying where I was. And the second thing that I noticed is actually I cared more I cared more than I thought about team teammates, you know? I thought first that I wouldn't ever miss any any team member because I, I'm someone who enjoys being alone and, and et cetera. But I do feel I did feel that it was it could be it could become really lonely. So I tried to seek for other people that were uh, remote working and that's how we got in touch because I came uh, onto that uh, forum uh, for remote workers and um, yeah, I was trying to meet local local people and that way I could not be alone when I was working, you know, so that I could uh, feel that I was still part of the team. I think those those were my two two main learnings aside from all the the, the obvious learnings such as you can work from wherever you are and that um, yeah, traveling is amazing, discovering new things is fantastic. Um, and it's important to learn to travel light and not care about like how you're, uh, you're obviously care. I think you should always care about how you dress, but I mean uh, more as in just, just keep it basic and, and don't, don't overdo things. And you need to be incredibly organized, I think as well, um, or just organized so that you can yeah, run through it all very smoothly. Wow. You mentioned uh, like earlier something that I feel like it's really important and I want to double down on it, which is like the system, how you can get uh, uh, like how, how you can be really productive. So for you, it was like, okay, figuring things where they are, for, uh, that would be like uh, creating a routine. So you would, ha- you know, where is the supermarket, you know, the gym. Can you list the stuff that if those are present in a place, that would be a, a suitable fit for uh, a remote working. Yeah. So first and foremost for me was to ensure that I had good Wi-Fi, right? So good Wi-Fi um, because I I needed to be on video conferences and I need, needed to make sure that, that when needed, that I could have a really good connection and not be, uh, it, uh, like not affect my work because... I needed to show to my colleagues that uh, being on the road did not impact the way we communicate. So Wi-Fi was, or an internet connection was extremely important. So that, that would, was probably the first thing that I would uh, figure out. And especially when I would rent a place, uh, whether it was an Airbnb or anywhere else, that would be my main focus, ensuring that I could always come home and have a really good uh, connection. And then uh, I would look, I would, so I would also look for cafes where you could work, co-working spaces, um, all of those things. Like the more the, those are present, the more I would be inclined to go to that city or to that place. Um, and then I would also look at um, affordability, right? So an affordability comes uh, with uh, ensuring that I can I can afford the rent, uh, that I can be comfortable where I'm staying, uh, that I can, that that the groceries are are affordable. So figuring out, like I said, the the, the food element for me. So for me, for example, um, I try to eat a lot of um, mostly vegetarian food. So. I, as long as I can get that, I'm fine. I don't have, uh, you know, in Europe, you, you have to think about halal food and stuff like that. But um, if it's not present, then that's fine. As long as I can find like a, a vegetarian food, um, I would look for, yeah, back then a gym and swimming pool. So I wanted to, I enjoy swimming. So I would look for whether that was uh, available or not. And if it wasn't available, then that was fine. Or uh, I was also, one of the things actually as an alternative to, to a gym was that I learned 
how to do exercises that didn't require me to go to the gym so that I could just do those at home or in the park or anything like that. Um, I personally also looked for uh, for warmth, so like a good climate. I didn't want to, as I traveled, I just wanted to stay in like warm climates mainly. Um, and yeah, from a legal perspective, I wanted to make sure that wherever I traveled to, I was allowed to stay for like a month and that it wouldn't be a problem uh, to stay there uh, and work there. Um, and yeah, I checked for flights, obviously, like making sure that they're good connections uh, and not too expensive. So I might... A lot of my travel I tried to be very flexible with so I, I didn't I tried to book tickets that were affordable so that that informed me on where I wanted to travel as well um, yeah. yeah so I, I, I think those are those are the things you know um, and for me obviously like I tend to I tend to look to environments where where there's also presence of my 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 religion for example like having muslims in the area like for for example i went to sicily and i went to uh greece and uh, i i deliberately decided not to stay super long there because because of the fact that there isn't a big community as big of a community as muslims as for example there is in in france or in in other places i've been to and that 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 yeah that impacted my decision to go to some places as well. In in which in which like it it, it impacted your decision for like like not finding a place to pray, for example, on Friday or like not finding a yeah. like in which way? Yeah, for me it was more. I think it was multifold. I just felt that it was important for me to know that there is a Muslim community in in a place, even if I wouldn't be actively involved in it. I, just knowing that that there's acceptance of uh, of having a Muslim community in place, so that you could find, for example, um, if if you had the need for it, like a, a halal uh, restaurants or halal butchers, um, making sure that the, you could go to Friday prayer, which was um, something that that is important. Um, I think that that w- I think that was just important to me, and it's it's the fe- it's more the feeling than like specific things, you know. Um, just knowing that I'm I would be comfortable in that environment, and that it doesn't mean that I wouldn't go there, but it would just like for example Athens, I went there, but I just stayed for like I think five days or so because there's literally no mosque in Athens, so really? there no mosque yeah, in Athens. Yeah, they're being it's being built, uh, and there was there was a mosque actually that was built during the Ottoman uh, Empire, and it's actually a museum right now. Um, so it's not being used as a mosque, and and there is a mosque being built right now, and um, it's 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 not finished yet, I think. But um, I I loved Athens, but yeah, again because it's it's lacking a, a big element of me, I, I didn't want to stay there for a very long time. Um, and so, so that played a role, and I think that also played a role of the places I chose. You know, like I, I chose to to go to France, to um, to to um, uh, to Istanbul, to uh, Beirut, to Dubai, to Morocco. You know, I chose a lot of places where I felt uh, my my different identities could find the right, um, yeah, the right environment. You know? Yeah. So you went to Istanbul, Beirut, uh, Dubai. Uh, yeah. What else? Sicily, London, um, yeah, Paris, Nice. Um, I, I had a layover. <laughs> I had a layover in uh, Jeddah, uh, but Not I couldn't the go in. the best layover ever. <laughs> it doesn't count, but uh, um, yeah, those were the places uh, I went to. Uh, yeah, I said London already. Your yeah. favorite at that uh, period? Definitely Istanbul, I would say. Yeah, because of it's the right mix for me. It's, um, it's, um, it has 
all that I crave from like um, my Moroccan identity. It has all that I crave from my like Dutch identity. Um, and it's a mix of everything and you can find everything you want there. And it's not, so Dubai, for example, has that as well. But the difference is that Istanbul has, has it historically, you know, it's, it's, it's mm. a very old city. It has a lot of uh, history and, 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 um, and, and, and beauty in everything that it is. And, and Dubai is, is still, is very modern, you know, it's very new and, and it's still great. But um, yeah, it, it, for me, it doesn't have that same appeal as Istanbul. Um, so except for, yeah, the language, of course, for me, it would be more difficult to live in Istanbul because I don't speak Turkish. But. Yeah, the, the, I guess with all your five languages in Istanbul, it's still a very difficult to communicate over there, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, luckily, the younger generation, uh, you can always find younger people that speak enough English, but with the older generation, yeah, it's a little bit harder to, uh, to do. But, um, but definitely Istanbul, top of my list, yeah. That, that's a good one it's it indeed it's one of my favorite places to go like and everything as you said like you can find everything and yet it's still affordable right exactly except that too yeah that, that absolutely too because that's something that in dubai is not the case dubai yeah it was a bit of a struggle because it was so extremely expensive like finding housing and all of that was yeah was definitely uh, difficult yeah, I remember, like, I think I think we got to know each other when you asked about Dubai in the nomad list, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was it, indeed. I was still doubting on whether I should go or not. Uh, I, for exa- and uh, what, I, what I find it difficult in Dubai, that, like, uh, to get the community. So you have, like, I, I guess, uh, well, a lot of nationality from everywhere, but... Yeah. I'm not sure whether that community uh, community exists or not. Uh, this is something yeah. I didn't investigate yet. Yeah, I I noticed the same thing. Like I felt it was pretty difficult to find like the remote working community, and it's and it's normal to be honest because Dubai is just really really expensive, and um, people that go and do remote work or are becoming digital nomads, the the last thing that they want, unless they they're already incredibly doing well, um, is to go to somewhere where it's extremely expensive. You know. Um, and, and yeah, Dubai, Dubai doesn't have that infrastructure to make it easy for someone, um, to, to, um, to do, to, to remote work affordably, um, because you can't, you can't really live in the city center affordably, but also you can't live outside because the public transportation is not, um, not ideal either. You, it's like you, you probably need a car unless you know exactly where you need to work. And there's not a lot of co-working spaces, if any. Um, there's a Sarkal Avenue, uh, which is amazing, but it's, it's not, the purpose is not necessarily to have remote workers there. Um, so it's like a first come, first serve place. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not, there's, no, there's no infrastructure yet for the remote workers or digital nomads. Like you have in Paris, for example, you have lots of co-working spaces. You can even pay for them or whatever not. Um, it, even in Istanbul, it was, it was pretty easy. Um, Beirut, they had a few of those um, in place as well. Um, and I think I haven't been to a lot of places that digital nomads would go to, like Thailand or whatever not, which I imagine are like heaven for 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 like uh, remote workers because it's just so affordable and and the infrastructure is just so so well set up, you know. Yeah, indeed. <clears throat> Anas, this has been amazing. I really, yeah, I'm really energized uh, talking with you on those any various topics. 
so okay. thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really a pleasure talking to you about these things. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully people will uh, find it interesting. Inshallah. I hope you had a good time listening to the show. If you have any comments or feedback, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at A-K-H-M-E-E-S. Have a good day.